I knew we, so, so we have one of our panelists also sitting in the audience. We're gonna have a family conversation, obviously, because you all have given me grace. I've arrived late. I'm the moderator. We have panelists sitting in the audience, so clearly we're gonna get really comfortable with each other. My name is Charmel Galden. I'm the Vice President of Public Safety Grants at Baptist Community Ministries. I have the uh, privilege at serving as kind of the curator of our conversation. We're gonna do things a little bit different, because nope, Jerry, don't move. Don't move too far. She did. Because we have video. I guess I better Yeah, we are being recorded. So look. So we're going to have a great conversation about incarceration. The statistics in our country tell us that we are the most incarcerated. We actually are in the most incarcerated place in the incarcerating country in the world. And for us to be in this place in 2019 begs the question, what are we doing to the people we say we care about who live in our community? Our panelists are gonna help us delve deeper into this conversation and question by talking through both incarceration and literacy as a form of freedom from incarceration. So we're gonna talk about it in a lot of different ways and we wanna hear your voices in this conversation. Again, my name is Charmel Galden. I'm going to give our panelists a, a chance to introduce themselves, and then I'm going to ask some questions of you, because I, I wasn't actually kidding when I said we're going to have a conversation that's going to be a, a little bit of a family interaction. That part was planned. <laughs> Not the part about being late, but that part was planned. So I'm going to turn it over to Sarah right now. Awesome. Um, I'm Sarah Mosula. I am the director of the Welcoming Project, which is the community reintegration arm of Travis Hill NOLA. Um, many of you might know about the Travis Hill schools, which are inside of the Youth Study Center and the Orleans Justice Center, um, formerly known as OPP. Um, and uh, what that means is that we provide support to young people who are leaving um, those incarcerated settings and um, you know help them get connected to a mentor, get connected to um, their, their schools again, uh, re-enroll, and also um, help them with um, doing activities in, the, um, activities in the city that they may not have had exposure to before. Um, 10 years ago, after Hurricane Katrina, I was an English teacher, um, and you know, reading has been something that's been very important throughout my life. It was a way when I was much younger to learn how to speak English, um, and also um, uh, you know, an, an escape. Um, and so I have always been very passionate about bringing um, literacy and literary interests to young people because um, you know, I think it you know, helps fully develop your mind, which I think a lot of us know already. So. Uh, I'm Susanna Rosenthal. Um, I'm on the board of directors for Louisiana Books to Prisoners, uh, although we prefer to refer to ourselves as a collective because we're, uh, we work as a group and, and with a sense of consensus. Um, we provide free reading materials to uh, people who are incarcerated um, in Louisiana and in other states, um, in the surrounding states, and to women all over the country. Um, so we send, uh, we receive letters from people requesting books and put together packages and, um, and mail them to them. Um, so uh, it's work that's really interesting, not only um, receiving letters from people, which a lot of us don't get to receive a lot of letters at this point <laughs> in time, and also um, uh, working with volunteers and like uh, kind of the way they're experiencing um, experiencing this and, and like how uh, humanizing it can be to, um, to read letters that, that people have written and kind of maybe better understand the experience. I'm Jerry Ward. 
And according to some of my former students, I'm a retired terrorist. Um, they accuse me of terrorizing. So, but uh, currently, I serve on the community advisory group. I'm very glad one of my fellow members is here for the uh, Public Safety and Justice Initiative for the City of New Orleans. And uh, I also try to help adult uh, prisoners at OJC. So to the retired terrorist, i.e. <laughs> professor, that's, that's, that's where he's uh, getting this from, the interrogation and rigor that you demanded of your students. When you think about um, what you're doing now, could you talk to us about the young people that you meet at, um, I always struggle with this, the Orleans Justice Center? Yeah, uh, I, I actually meet young people when I'm going into Travis Hill, but the people I have the real engagement with are 25 and above. So the oldest uh, uh, person I dealt with was 65. And I, uh, and I think there's a real, there's a significant difference in dealing with juveniles and dealing with an adult population. I want to say uh, that, um, well, first I want to honor one of the prisoners I worked with who one day just simply gave me a manuscript. And I'd been giving assignments to them and trying to help them prepare for the high set exam. And he just wrote this. And I read it. And, uh, it was uh, a piece that he wrote as he was trying to deal with the experiences of being incarcerated with his trauma, with family problems. And it was an excellent piece. So I said to him, we must send this to a magazine. He said, well, I don't know anything about doing that. So I, I said, I'll take care of it. I sent it to Podunk Review. The editors loved it. It's going to be published. I was so awed by his ability, and he was the very best writer in the entire group. I was so awed by it that it was his unbridled honesty, his courage, and his bravery. So I wrote a poem, which all of y'all on the panel will be getting, called Alone. It's a Quonsaba, which I'll read for everybody now. And the title of his piece was Alone, so that's why this is called Alone. Alone. When you alone speak up alone as spasms of light in black holes, or else alone you visit unknown dread, itself alone in a blood-black fist that pounds against even odds of fate. Did you ponder alone how your spirit, being an egg, alone, refuses to crack? And I would say that 
and try to try to take this forward from there. Since unrecorded antiquity, people who have been imprisoned have used literacy in some way. This is nothing new. It's very ancient. And they're dealing with their plight. They're dealing with confinement. They're dealing with being segregated from us who think of ourselves as uh, free people. They're serving they're obligated to pay for acts that are deemed criminal. And in the most tragic instances, and we have many of these we hear about from time to time, they're paying with their lives for things they did not do because they are later exonerated when all of the, when we have full disclosure of what happened. So I'm just going to make two points, and then I want to hear from my fellow panelists. The two points to follow the title of our panel is this. One, literacy is a tool that enables prisoners to demonstrate their innate intelligence and humanity and to minimize a few of the inevitable frustrations of being in jail. Two, literacy is a tool to combat forms of mental incarceration which seem to be rampant in the 21st century. So when we really think about the metaphorical dimensions of the concept of incarceration, we may recognize that all of us are incarcerated by something in everyday life. And if we arrive at such a recognition, we may be moved to have compassion for those who have made unwise choices and defied the rule of law. And we may be moved to do more than just talk about the material differences of incarceration in the name of social justice. We may indeed persuade ourselves to invest some of our energy in action rather than speech. So I just wanted to take a moment to soak in what just got said. So we have a specific challenge in some ways issued to our panelists about what Ms. Dr. Ward just raised up, but also for you all to think through some of the key things that he lifted up and separately how they might impact folks who are experiencing incarceration. I'm going to pause because I don't want to put anyone in the spot, but I can feel Susanna ready. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I think you have a specific vantage point, especially as people are writing to you and sharing their experiences, to reflect on the first part of what Dr. Ward laid out. Well, when you're talking about um, mental incarceration, that's certainly a theme that comes up a lot in letters. Um, and people talking about um, uh, the freedom they're finding through books. And I mean, this is a theme I think we've all read in many, many pieces <laughs> of literature over you know, our lives. But, um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's recurring. Um, and um, uh, just a really powerful reminder of uh, well, you know, you're talking about action, and it's this is like such a overwhelming systemic problem that's easily um, 
it's much easier to uh, hide from or separate ourselves from or like hope that someone else is working on it <laughs> because um, it, you know, it doesn't really feel like whatever thing we're doing is making a difference. And, um, but it's important to do you know, what you're able to do at the time. And, and that might just be sending a book to someone or becoming a pen pal or like in some way like forging connections between people who are inside and people who are um, on the outside. Because um, this is, um, you know, this is part of the work also. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, like kind of what you were saying about, um, you know, the, you know, men mental incarceration is, is definitely an, you know, at issue, but I think of our work at the Welcoming Project as being an in interruption into the criminal justice um, system and as a, and a piece of um, criminal justice reform. And so treating our young people in a different way than we have previously. So I think we've, we've come, you know, often in Louisiana from a punishment mindset. So everything is about, you know, you've done something or you are suspected to have done something and therefore we are pretty, we being Louisiana are pretty ready to throw you away. Um, and, and so the way, you know, that we're, we're thinking of literacy at the Welcoming Project is sort of like an escape, right? Um, it's an escape from that cycle of, um, you know, just kind of this cycle of, of bad thoughts that we have about our young people, um, and also an ex a chance for them to explore, you know, all of their power. I think um, something, you know, while both of y'all were talking, I, I was thinking about the, um, the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, um, and, and as a you know recovering lawyer, or maybe I'm not recovering. I am a lawyer. I will continue to just be a sort of a lawyer. Um, and uh, and and a lot of what I saw there, you know, I think a lot of us think about like, oh, you know, there's there was uh, there was slavery, there was Jim Crow, and then you know the civil rights era just kind of interrupted all of that, right, for us somehow. And then we're we're in this place where you know things are different. But actually, you know, I I. I it's, you're able to see at the Legacy Museum a very unbroken line between slavery and Jim Crow and now, right? And so there are a lot of... Explain the Legacy Museum. Oh, yes. So the Legacy Museum is um, a, a, a museum put together by the Equal Justice Initiative, um, which is headed up by Brian Stevenson. And basically, it's it, I think the name of the museum is the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration. And so it really shows, you know, in using words, a lot of words, which is, um, you know, kind of really exciting. Um, and some pictures, too, the unbroken line from, from when, young, when people were stolen from Africa and brought to the United States and what happened after um, emancipation, that the laws that went into effect to, you know, still impede um, progress and education for people who were enslaved um, or previously enslaved. Um, and how that moved into you know our our uh, our current method of incarcerating and enslaving people. So um, it's a it's I, I highly recommend everyone go. And one of the things that the Welcoming Project we're trying to do is bring our students there too to show that one literacy is power, and um, and that power has been intentionally taken from 
from people. There were many laws in, in North Carolina and Mississippi here that you couldn't teach someone who was enslaved to read and sometimes someone who was free to write um, because that was a, a power and an escape from, um, from their, their current, uh, uh, you know, they might get ideas and they might revolt and they might run away and in order to keep people you know in chains you you kind of have to take that knowledge and power from them so all of that to say that here in you know in New Orleans today what you know we're doing at the welcoming project involves like trying to help young people engage with things that previously you know reading is not the thing that you think is a fun thing to do on a Saturday but we do that on Saturday at the welcoming project and in fact it's called it's lit it's lit Saturday. <laughs> and so our young people are like, okay, yeah, I'll come. We'll go on a field trip. We'll get some breakfast. We'll do some free writing about what exactly um, we experienced on whatever field trip. So they went to the sculpture garden and they wrote about that, what that experience was. Most of the kids had never, didn't know about the sculpture garden, had never been there. Um, you know, we're trying to bring in, you know, other people in the, in the, uh, community to work with our young our young people on lit Saturdays to just really think about you know different expose them to other experiences and help them um, you know analyze and and uh, you know process what they've what they've been experiencing as a way to you know kind of show them all of those things that they didn't get to see as an incarcerated young person for many years um, here in the city so that was kind of like a weaving and rambling but um, what we're doing. <laughs> so what I heard was a, a deliberate approach towards making sure young people, especially those who've been impacted by the juvenile justice and criminal justice system, have dedicated creative writing and increased literacy time. Yes. One of the things um, Dr. Ward mentioned also um, was the uh, community advisory group of the Safety and Justice Challenge. And we've yes. had the opportunity to work on that together in my role at, at Baptist Community Ministries. And for those who may not know, the Safety and Justice Challenge is a part of a larger grant initiative funded by the MacArthur Foundation and supported by some local foundations like Baptist Community that works to reduce our local jail size. You know, at the height of Katrina, we had about 7,500 folks in our jail. Currently, we have about 14, 12. That's, a, that's 12, 12 something. 12, we've gone down even further, which is excellent. Um, but there's a lot of controversy to that, right? So one would think that reducing our local jail size would be without controversy, but as someone who experiences a lot of the blowback, I will tell you it had become controversial. And what we really wanted to do when thinking about the community advisory group is make sure that people who are living, working, um, existing in New Orleans have an opportunity to influence the conversation in policy around our jail. Um, we're moving towards a place where this group creates some jail oversight. And right now they are accepting applications. So I really advise people to go look on the city website. If you're interested, you can contact me. But when I um, first started working with the group, one of the things that um, the group expressed was the need to get deeper and really figure out what are some of these root causes and how folks can intervene and, and really um, stop people from entering the criminal justice system. Right. Can you talk about some of your work there? Uh, again, I would want to make it clear to everyone that this is not, that, that 
The problems we're trying to deal with are long-term. There are no quick fixes. When we try to deal with young people, we need to start when they're Naomi's age or younger, four and five and six years old, and encouraging a particular kind of literacy among young people, which may, and I, I, I stress the condition of may prevent them from just crumbling under peer pressure and becoming involved in activities. We don't have any guarantees. With our school system, we have to do more. And I won't get into that. That's another argument altogether. But I think we have to suggest that more needs to be done with schools to help young people understand why you want to deport yourself in such a way as not to attract the attention of, of NOPD. But for me, and I'm not even dealing uh, uh, with the juveniles, I'm dealing with an adult population, and I have a particular reason for that, and I would refer all of us to Ernest Gaines' excellent novel, A Lesson Before Dying. Because when you read Jefferson's diary, and every time I read it, I start crying, Jefferson was the, the poor guy who was caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. And he did not kill anyone, but he was condemned anyway. And the most hurting thing was that the agents of the criminal justice system called him a hog. They reduced his, they said he was a hog. And members of his family and his community, his uh, Teton, his uh, uh, Moran godmother, insisted that Grant Wiggins, who was a teacher, would help him. Grant's rather reluctant, but he does. And when you read what Jefferson wrote, and I'm trying to bring this back to words and music, when you read what Gaines has put into the hands of Jefferson about the need to prove that he is not what the criminal justice system said he was, he has said, he said, Men walk on two foots. Hogs walk on four hoops. And although this is an instance that's fictional, it is so telling about the attitude, the callousness that we have about the incarcerated. They're throwaway items. Now, to be sure, there are people who have done 
heinous things and deserve to be incarcerated. They are dangerous to society. They are, they may be serial killers. They may be insane in a very strange way that even the mental people who deliver mental health care can't deal with. And many of those insane people are not in asylums. They're running around in political offices. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, really, it's really a very, it's a very, very involved matter. And I'm, I'm, I'm making a kind of plea about this volunteer work. And, and before we even volunteer, I want to say this. You have to be very clear-eyed about what you're doing. Because it is so easy, once you begin to deal with incarcerated adults, to slip from sympathy into empathy, and then you are in danger. That is a risk, believe me. It will get into your ulcers, you will be having, you will have some kind of problems because you are now identifying with them, not as people who are actually inboxed, but you are realizing, yeah, there are things in my life, there are things in the life of human beings that are so like prison. And I, and I, and I think we just stand back from that and say, okay, you're, you're helping them on Saturdays with reading and having experiences. For me, the most important thing is to give the man or woman who is an adult imprisoned, many of whom may be re-entering society at some point, skills. Literacy, skills in literacy, and literacy goes from everything about numbers and media. Uh, I, I read something recently where, uh, right after Katrina, one of the real problems was that some of the people were so ashamed of not being able to understand the documents that were coming from FEMA that they didn't apply for help because they couldn't read it and they didn't want to tell people I can't read or that I read at such a level I cannot understand this language which seems complicated and for many, for those of us who have uh, the, the, the privilege of being educated, this is simple language. Difficult language is what, what the lawyers write. I mean, you know, and I'm not, Dumping on lawyers, but you write you in a can. particular yeah. way. No, you write, one you, lawyer joke. No, you, you yeah. write in a you write in a particular way, and there's a reason for that. You know, there's a reason for you sounding like uh, Kavanaugh. But anyway, oh. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not that. All right. No, no, not. I mean, but he's a very intelligent man. I mean, whatever we think of him, right? And he can use language, and so can uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But uh, to Stay where we are. You see, with when, when we when we're dealing with these these people in literacy, there are many forms of literacy that we have to try to deal with. But always, it's going to be the person's possession of those skills, which makes her or him 
feel better about themselves. That is so important. That's what, I mean, if we want to, if we want to understand, and you mentioned Legacy Museum, if we want to understand why, in many instances, we have so much criminal activity throughout this country, it is because so many young Americans think that all of us older people have created a world that is horrible for them and they cannot have a very high sense of their worth. So I want us to sit and think about that and the structures and worlds we're creating and the spaces in which we have to recreate worlds. One of the things that's really exciting about this space and this conference in a room full of writers and readers, the ability to create a new world and to travel into new worlds, specifically from books, is really incredible. Susanna, you said something that um, really uh, triggered my ears. You said two words that were really important for me that I hope you will share again and define for our audience. Collective and consensus. Can you talk to me about why you all formed as a collective, how this informs your approach to the folks who are writing to you all, and why you operate on a consensus model, or what it is at all? Um, well, I was not around at the origin of Louisiana Books to Prisoners, <laughs> although there's someone in the audience who <laughs> has been around longer than I have. Um, but I will just um, kind of speak to where we are now and how that functions um, in our current uh, existence. And um, one of the things is that we're all um, coming to this organization from different places. Some of us are abolitionists and quite radical. <laughs> and some of us are just like really interested in books and literacy. So we have like differing kind of approaches. Um, but our mission is to send reading material to people who are incarcerated so we can all agree on that one central thing and bring, um, bring our different approaches into like the way, you know, providing different points of access for volunteers and for other people to, to join us and to, to fund our work, um, but uh, yeah, we, we don't, um, I, I feel like we all uh, feel really passionately that the, the typical, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, but we um, feel like that model, um, you know, creates a, a, a hierarchy and like a lot of kind of set um, roles for people and we, find uh, the work most engaging when we can bring what what we have at that moment to it. So some of us are more active parts of the year um, and maybe, you know, have to work on other things for a while. And so we're, we're able to be very flexible in our, um, in our commitment and like really value um, kind of all of the different um, personalities and uh, contributions that, that we're able to bring. And you know, for some of us, just uh, that kind of decision making is something that we're hoping for, uh, to, hoping to manifest in <laughs> other parts of the universe. So, like creating that model that is um, free from kind of uh, arbitrary rules or um, you know, kind of unnecessary 
hurdles, you know, to, to functioning for us. Right. Hurdles. Would you tell people who think the audience what kinds of books can actually be sent to people in the chains? Can you all did you all hear the question? Well, I want I want it. That's, that's so, a, um, so Dr. Ward asked, what type of books can actually be sent? Yeah, that's because you you deal with that. Yeah, so we actually spend a good deal of time working on problems of access. Um, it's easy to think that, uh, and I used to think that people who were in prison had access to libraries. Um, I mean, that's certainly what's portrayed to us on Orange is the New Black and, <laughs> you know, various things. And that's just often not the case. Um, so first of all, like, people often don't have access to books. Um, they might have a very out-of-date library. Um, they might have read all the books in it. <laughs> um, there, there might have been a flood and the library might not have been replaced. There might not be uh, someone to staff the library. It might be sitting unused. Um, and uh, there's also punitive um, hurdles. So if someone has uh, received, you know, some kind of but you know that's something that can be taken away is is privileged to access the library, um, and and that happens quite a bit. Um, also, with personal books, if you're moved to a different facility, um, you're often not allowed to take those things with you. Um, there's like a, a method of um, you know that involves money. Either someone has to come pick them up and bring them to you, or you have to pay to have them. Um, yeah, so so that, and then I'll just move on to what your question actually was, which is which books can we actually send? Um, and and so uh, <coughs> there's some. Um, well, firstly, this is not a centralized like you know decision of how like what books are accepted in different facilities. It varies for every facility, and there's really no way you know like there's no website we can go like look it up, there's no one to call and find out what the various restrictions are. So we tend to rely on information we get from, from letters from people to figure this out. Um, but the main ones are um, no hardcover books, um, no uh, like books with CDs uh, in them. Uh, like So a lot of educational books now include a, a CD, so we have to rip those out. Um, no books with uh, depictions of um, weapons uh, or nudity on the cover, no maps. That includes fantasy maps. <laughs> no maps. Like even like a, a map of like a, in, a, in a fantasy yeah, novel. Sure. Yeah, it's like no maps of it. Like they're not kind of evaluating whether this is like, you know, a real map of the, you know, duct work of the prison or something. It's just like no maps. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, and then some places have even further restrictions. Um, like Angola, the state penitentiary for Louisiana, only allows new books, uh, brand new books. Um, so we have to have a separate uh, stash of books just for um, for people in Angola, um, so we can provide books to them. Um, most of our books are donated, so we we have a lot of used books that we're sending.